welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumseh-Sequimpton territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequimpton-Ulu. And today's text, George, or Melissa, depending on when you bought it, and we are going to talk about that, mm-hmm. takes place just north of New York City in the traditional home of the Munsee Lenape peoples. Joe, I feel like we've spent a lot of time in this territory in recent episodes. <laughs> we have, and actually that's maybe a good time to cue people to the fact that we are recording a lot of these most recent episodes out of order in advance of Brenna going on vacation. So leaving town, baby. <laughs> she's taking her books, she's packing up, she's heading out. So uh, <laughs> if it sometimes seems like we're a little discombobulated about what has come before and after, it is because, yeah, we've recorded a bunch of these out of order in a short period of time. Joe even made me a really handy list of like what we're recording when and then when it exists in real life. And I still can't keep anything straight. Poor Joe. Oh, it's incredibly confusing. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But you're right. It does seem like lately we've been spending quite a fair amount of time in and around the New York State area. Yeah, including back-to-back book clubs, right? Because the Pigman took place in Muncie Lenape territory too. I believe so. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, Joe, I have been really excited for us to tackle this book as part of our band book club. Mm-hmm. So the book is George by Alex Gino, more recently republished from 2022 on as Melissa. Mm-hmm. Joe, this is, was the number one most banned and challenged book in 2018, in yep. 2019, yep. and in 2020. Yep. I wonder if its luck will change in 2021. (laughs) Well, people have become so much more accepting in last year, right? Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I'm not gonna lie. I knew that I was gonna get frustrated and angry and just like a little bit expletive laden when I saw that this book was a middle grade fiction book about a trans girl. And I knew that it wouldn't be anything more than that. And yet reading this book and seeing, yes, we are going to use the word gentle because I think it is so wholly appropriate here, Mm -hmm. but just seeing how gentle it is, how age appropriate it is, Mm -hmm. and how accessible and important it is for young readers. Oh, Brenna, I was just so full of venom at all of these transphobes who were trying to get this book out of the hands of the people who need it. It's wild to me when we get to actually look at the reasons for the banning, the kind of language that is used just tells you a heck of a lot more about the people who are pushing to challenge and ban books than it does about the books themselves. But before we do any of that, let's celebrate this book a little bit and talk about the extremely adorable plot. Absolutely. Okay, so this novel follows the story of Melissa. Melissa is a transgender girl, and the rest of the world sees her as George. Mm -hmm. Melissa is in the fourth grade, and the school is in the middle of 
Charlotte's Web Apalooza. There's this whole <laughs> event where all the junior kids read the same book, and the oldest of the junior kids, the fourth graders, put on a play of the book. And this year, the book is Charlotte's Web. Right. The class rule is that every girl auditions for Charlotte, and every boy auditions for Wilbur. And Boo. of course. <laughs> Melissa doesn't want to audition as Wilbur. Melissa practices and practices and practices to audition as Charlotte. Ms. Udell, the teacher, who swings between being sympathetic and being infuriating for me in this book. <laughs> yep, correct. <laughs> she recognizes that Melissa is passionate and a good actor and probably would kick butt at being Charlotte, but she says she can't make Melissa Charlotte because... Melissa is a boy, and boys play boys on the stage. It would be too confusing for the other students. So right. that's one vignette that's sort of expanding across the course of the narrative. The students are getting ready to do this play, and Melissa and her best friend Kelly are hatching a bit of a plan, which I'll talk mm -hmm. about in a second. <laughs> but the backdrop of this is Melissa's family life. Melissa's dad has left to start a franchise family elsewhere. And <laughs> I, I love it when you use that term. <laughs> it's such a good term. Um, and Melissa's mom is a good mom, an involved yeah. mom. But she's really nervous about the way the world perceives Melissa. She thinks that mm -hmm. Melissa is queer and that... Right the way Melissa presents as George is going to get her hurt. Yes. So she's she tries to do things like, for example, Melissa has a bunch of like teen girl magazines, mm -hmm. like YM and Seventeen magazine that she loves to look through. And um, Melissa's mom throws those away. Melissa's brother also has a hard time understanding where Melissa is coming from, doesn't really kind of get her. And so the family life is loving, but complicated and not wholly accepting. Uh, okay. At first. I, I can see where you're coming from, but I feel like the older brother is more just at a bit of a disconnect. Like they used to have mm -hmm. a very close relationship and they've since grown apart a little bit. But I don't know. I don't want to say that the older brother isn't supportive even from the beginning. It just kind of feels like... Mm -hmm. It feels like no one pays attention to Melissa and is not emotionally connected with what she is going through. Like, no one really stops to ask, hey, are you doing okay? What's going on with you? Yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. And I think that Melissa's brother ends up being like one of the standout characters in the book by the end. Mm -hmm. In fact, when Melissa does bravely tell her family how she's feeling, uh, for Scott, it's like this moment of everything slots into place. Like, mm -hmm. Scott couldn't figure out who George was, but Scott can understand who Melissa is. And it's, like, pretty seamless for him, um, especially compared to, to Melissa's mom, who struggles a little bit more. Yeah. The culmination of the book is that um, Kelly and Melissa hatch this plan because Kelly was cast as Charlotte. Kelly's going to give up one of her two performances as Charlotte and let Melissa take the role. Um, and Melissa's going to have this experience of being this role that she really wants mm. to. And she does this incredible job. Everybody is super complimentary. Um, there is a bullying backstory that happens where Melissa actually gets attacked by a boy in the class after trying to stand up for herself. Um, but that, of course, is 
is muted by the victory at the play. And then Melissa and Kelly spend a day with an uncle who's never met Melissa before. And Melissa gets to go out to the zoo and be Melissa. And the the sort Mm -hmm. of end of the book is this like just joyful experience of being in the world as the person who Melissa feels she is. And it's, that's the book. It's lovely. Yeah. It's very sweet. It's (laughs) really lovely. (laughs) I will say this is one of those books, again, that has a kind of Q&A and some other things about, you know, how did this book come about in interview with Alex Gino. And I didn't realize that the book was ending where it was. And in hindsight, I do think it's a really good ending. Like it's well suited for the tale that Gino is telling. And yet I found that it really snuck up on me to the point Mm -hmm. where I almost thought that I was missing a last act. But I realized it's because I've been primed to expect a dramatic bullying confrontation from things like Let the Right One In and some of the other texts that we've covered. And I was actually really happy that the bullying isn't extreme Mm -hmm. and it kind of gets nipped in the butt. And then we just end on this happy sort of perfect day. I feel the same way. I was actually braced for some kind of confrontation, some Mm -hmm. adult to step in for Kelly's uncle to suddenly, you know, feel like he's been had and his feelings be centered. When none of that happened, it felt so radical to me. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was interesting because we heard, of course, because this is book club from a number of readers. And one of them, Sophie, mentioned in their email that they were so concerned that they actually had to read to the end. Like they just had to double check the end to make sure that it Mm. didn't end unhappily because they, they were not going to be able to handle that. We've had so many unhappily ever after queer and particularly trans stories. And I I think we are, as readers, really primed for it. You know, it's something we've talked about with, we've talked about with some of the authors that we've interviewed, and we've talked about it in relation to texts written by folks from different marginalized groups that Mm -hmm. oftentimes it seems like what publishing thinks will sell are those tragic stories. And so we see them one after another after another. And right. to have this very age-appropriate, ultimately very triumphant tale of Melissa's coming to herself, I don't know. It was just, yeah. <laughs> I come back to this idea of it being radical. Like, it's like a radical joy in this yeah. book. It's really lovely. It's refreshing. It's one of those things where we can have a happy ending. And, you know, uh, I think a couple of folks did mention whether or not this is realistic and whether Mm. or not everything would go down quite so simply like, oh, mother approves, older brother approves, ally in the school principal, principal Maldonado, you know, everything just kind of locks in place for Melissa. And is that true to life? And I found I wasn't bothered by that because I was so unused to seeing just a happy narrative that Mm -hmm. maybe it is a bit of a fairy tale but compared to something like birthday I was ready for this I needed this (laughs) yeah no absolutely I totally I totally agree with you okay I want to shift gears and it's going to make you mad but I want to talk about the reasons why this book has been banned Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead. So, as we already acknowledged, this is one of the most challenged books that is currently circulating. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I find most alarming is the way transphobic cultural narratives get framed as like protecting mm-hmm. kids. Yep. And get framed as some sort of issue of community, like, safety. And also, I think they become flashpoints and opportunities for adults to bully children, frankly. Yep, absolutely. All of those things. So the one I want to start with today is a challenge that happened in 2019 that I think is really important because it was very highly publicized. Um, so Oregon does a Battle of the Books every year, and it's, okay. like, a, all the schools get to participate. So the idea is that copies of the book make their way into the hands of all the schools in all the school districts, and everybody is reading the same book, and you get, like, statewide uh, reading competitions and conversations, and Mm. it allows them to bring in guest speakers and do things, you know, because they have the funding of the whole state. It's an awesome idea. Go Oregon. great. Yeah. (laughs) So in 2018, one of the books included on the Battle of the Books was George, and we saw just just massive bad behavior on the part of adults. So four (laughs) elementary schools in the Cascade School District withdrew from the competition entirely. The Hermiston School District barred its elementary students from participating. And they actually had like a shadow competition that included every book except George. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So you end up with like teachers and parents in this position of saying like, this book is not acceptable for, and I probably shouldn't say teachers there because it's probably school administrators more than anything, Mm -hmm. um, saying that this book is not age appropriate. And I think that that is really dangerous, frankly, to try to frame this book as being not age appropriate. Something that we've seen in bans that have occurred in Kansas in particular, but in other states as well, um, is language that this book must be withdrawn from school shelves because of quote unquote sexual content. We see the line sexual content over and over and over in the documentation of these challenges and bans. Joe, Mm -hmm. where is the sexual content in this book? (laughs) Uh, I think these people are referring to the lived authentic experience of a trans person and trying to weaponize that somehow as sexuality. Like, yes, there, there is brief mention of genitalia when Melissa gets into the bath and she hates the fact that she has boy's anatomy. And at one point, Scott asks if, she will consider transitioning. Uh, And, you know, Kelly reads up a little bit about it and and says, oh, this is an option for you if you wanted to think about it. So the book is definitely having conversations about how a trans person can medically change to become who they actually are, but it is never sexualized. That's exactly, that's not sexual. And like kids talking about their genitalia when they get Mm -hmm. in the bath, is like literally the most normal thing in the world. Actually, I just found the cutest video and I was going through some old videos the other day of Groot when he's like two and he's Mm -hmm. standing waiting to get in the bath. And Devin says, what do you take in the bath with you? And he says, my penis, toes, and scrotum. (laughs) My goodness. (laughs) And real, truth, yes. (laughs) It's like the most normal thing in the world for kids to talk about that stuff from a really little age and like i don't know i guess 
it's weird to me that adults sexualize yes. very normal discussion of mm-hmm. children's genitals. I find that extremely upsetting, actually, <laughs> that the idea that a kid being like, I have a penis and it's upsetting to me is sexualized in the minds of the adults who are, I was going to say reading the book, probably not reading the book, let's be real. Right. I just, I thought, Mm -hmm. a number of people who wrote in talked about the idea of sort of like legislating trans folk out of existence. Yeah. And you know, Tea Books and Chocolate makes this point very articulately. She writes, it highlights to me that bans on this book are about legislating queerness and trans people out of existence. There's nothing obscene about this novel. Genitals are mentioned in the most delicate way. There are no crushes. Mm. There is no sexual attraction. The references to masturbation are tame and nothing a child of this age wouldn't hear about otherwise. The only thing that exists for people to object to is the existence of trans people. I keep trying to find words to express how angry and sad and scared it makes me to know that people like that exist and I just can't find them. I once heard Miriam Kaba describe liberation as promoting life-giving on a podcast, and that is what this book feels like to me. I feel like it will give kids the language to understand who they are without shame, which can be life-saving. To imagine the hatefulness that makes people want to make it inaccessible is utterly disgusting. Yeah. Preach. Preach, yeah. Two Books and Chocolate. Yes. 100%. All 100%. of that. Because yeah. every, every conversation that I see about transness right now is this framing of the trans community as dangerous and predatory and this isn't a new thing but it feels like something that has been gaining a lot of steam over the last couple of years stoked by one she who shall not be named over in the uk Mm -hmm. but you know obviously taken up as a kind of call to arms by a lot of politicians who are looking to capitalize on bigotry and hatred. And that's what this feels like. Like, that's what's so obvious about this book in particular being challenged is this idea that even by reading this, children will be corrupted and polluted mm-hmm. as though acknowledging that a person exists. Like, and that that's why I think Tea Books and Chocolates email really resonated with me is that it feels like if we can just get this book off the shelves and out of the hands of children, then trans people will no longer exist. And newsflash, it doesn't freaking work that way. And also, I can't help but think of the the kids who need this. Like, Mm -hmm. we need these kinds of stories because these are the children that are most likely to try to die by suicide or who are going to be the most actively bullied. They've already got such a hard road coming for them that the idea of taking away something that just affirms their life is mind-blowing to me. Like, why do we have to take that away from them? It's profoundly upsetting that there are adults, like adult humans with, like, responsibilities and other things to think about who Mm -hmm. spend so much time and energy imagining a boogeyman out of children who are just trying to get an understanding of themselves and their place in the world and like Mm -hmm. a book like this that is so i know we keep saying gentle joe it's the best word to describe this book (laughs) this book this book more than any other book we have ever used the word for because as you point out like these are kids who are at risk in a very real way and and guess what that risk is not diminished by pretending that that children who have these questions don't exist. Mm -hmm. 
I'm just so alarmed with the last, I mean, the last year in particular has been yeah. really bad, but I know it's been longer than that but it just feels so visceral in the last year between you know florida's don't say gay bill and the challenges to quote-unquote critical race theory and this desire to just erase marginalized existence from the conversation because it might make cishet white kids uncomfortable to to have some of these conversations like i Mm -hmm. and the reality is is that it's not about the kids and it never has been no. It's about the parents and their their weird obsession with thinking that, yeah, we can protect everything bad from our kids by not making them feel horrible. And you're just like, it doesn't work that way. This whole cultural moment really dovetails nicely with something that Miriam brought up in their email that I think is really worth talking about here. Mm-hmm. Miriam writes... I do have a few issues with this book, and that's mostly to do with gender stereotypes. When girls dress up, they wear skirts. Girls love makeup. You're not a very good boy. I'm not sure if kids would pick up on this or if Alex Gino deliberately chose to do it like this to make the contrast between boys and girls a little bigger so that Mm -hmm. it's clear that Melissa is a girl, but it did bother me. I don't know if it's a cultural difference, maybe. And then Miriam then goes on to talk about how those stereotypes didn't really fit when they were growing up. I'm very fascinated by this aspect of our discourse, which, mm-hmm. Joe, when we were growing up in the 90s, like, androgyny was like a really huge aesthetic. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right? And even back into the 80s, like, it was the popular thing to do with a lot of recording artists, right? Yes. Yeah. And so we had this sort of almost like genderlessness but gender play in particular seemed at least in the popular imaginary to be about androgyny and like yes how androgynous can you look and at the same time there were a lot of options for us growing up as kids to play with gender neutral things Mm -hmm. something that i found really really interesting is how hard it is to find gender neutral things now like the toy section the clothing section like these are so much more stratified between boy things and girl things Mm -hmm. um, than they ever have been before and you know it's 2022 anybody who follows my instagram knows that groot is like big into rainbows and unicorns (laughs) your child is so genderqueer and i really (laughs) love it it's and it's like it's these are the things that he likes like we were having this great conversation because uh his new obsession is with these lego friends which is the like the lego sets like quote-unquote four girls okay and we were talking about it and it's like the colors are better and you know what the colors are better the houses are like rainbow once you put them together they're not like Mm, gray right (laughs) one of his teachers said to us like i think it's really cool that you're okay with him wearing unicorn stuff and it was you know she was be- she was trying to be generous. Yes. But everything that's cloaked around that comment mm-hmm. is so distressing to me. Yep. First of all, he picks. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. He tells us what to call him. And, you know, gender queer is a really good word for it because he will tell you very assertively that he is a boy and that he loves all these kinds of things. And also, you're not allowed to call him handsome. You have to call him beautiful. That is the only compliment oh. that he will currently accept. <laughs> And all the kids at school are fine with it. Nobody gives him a hard time. He's like who he is. And it's always adults with their comments that impose questions, right? Well, 
Yeah, and that doesn't surprise me at all, because I think what's happened is as we get older, we increasingly become indoctrinated into the binary structures, and they're Mm -hmm. often incredibly gendered, right, of Mm -hmm. the world. So you are either this or that, but not both. And there's no, you know, fluidity or malleability in between. But particularly when it comes to gender, you know, I, I think of the number of interactions I've had with people who talk about the clothes or the gifts that they get for newborn babies and it's mm-hmm. all like pink for girls and blue for boys and yeah you know oh this baby is handsome or beautiful but never both mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me it feels like something that we've been brainwashed into as we become older and I think that Miriam makes a really good point and I'm actually a little ashamed to admit I hadn't even thought of it when I was reading the book because I was just so enamored with the positivity of it mm-hmm. And I do wonder if this was a deliberate decision by Gino to say, I'm not going to overcomplicate this because I do want the story to be relatively straightforward. But I think that it's important to have that kind of critical lens when we look at it because it does, in the end, reinforce some pretty traditional gender stereotypes, even though we are talking about a trans protagonist. Well, and it's interesting too, because I find this really hard to talk about because the TERFs do use this as a red herring, right? Right. So the TERFs throw out this whole thing about like, well, your definition of femininity is very, you know, firm or your definition of masculinity is very firm. And, you know, you've seen those posts on Twitter. It's like, whatever happened to tomboys? There used to be tomboys and now everybody's trans. You can't see me shaking my head so aggressively. I'm giving myself a (laughs) neck ache right now. We're in this social moment where all of this gender anxiety has created this like panicked back to the essentials, back to the binary. Of course, yeah. From like corporations, like good luck finding things that aren't gendered. It's really Mm -hmm. hard right now. Unless a brand is like committed to that as as their thing, it's really hard. Right. So on the one hand, we have that. On the other hand, we have... Turf's throwing out this red herring of like, people used to be allowed to experiment with gender and now everybody's trans. And yet, like, I was reading this really interesting reflection about how a lot of particularly trans women go through this period of sort of aggressive femininity because it's a safety thing. Like trying really hard to like, quote unquote, pass in a Mm -hmm. way that's acceptable before settling into something that maybe feels a little bit more um, something that can be maintained, like for one thing, right? Yeah. There just seems to be so little grace around people asking questions about their own self and identity. And this desire to make everything into an issue of like, how dare you encourage kids to be trans? Like, it's all it's all BS, right? Like mm-hmm. the kids are being forced to transition. BS. Like, especially, no, man, if you not. live in a place with socialized care, like try to get access to that care, right? Like it's gate kept pretty freaking hard. And what it says to me too, and I'm lucky enough to be friends with several trans people, albeit only, I'm using only in quotations online, but you know, I I know a few people, I've seen them go through part of their journey, either through transition or starting HRT and that kind of stuff. And it's not like you just walk into the doctor's no. office and say, hi, I'd like to begin transitioning. It is something that takes a very long time. It is costly. Mm-hmm. 
It takes a lot of deliberation and consultation and sometimes convincing of doctors and mm -hmm. friends and parents. So if somebody tells you that they feel this way, that this is not their authentic self, it is not something that people are just like coming home from school one day and saying, and the idea that, oh, people are just being trans all over the place, like, get a clue. You have mm -hmm. no idea what these people's lives are actually like. And when you say things like these, when these TERFs say things like this, when these politicians say things like this, I think you don't know any trans people and or you have never bothered to ask them those questions. Absolutely. Yes, 100%. It does not reflect anything like the lived experience of reality. And we'll go back to the book in a second. But can we talk about the fact real briefly that... As cisgender people, we can get gender-affirming care mm -hmm. all the time. Like, yeah. if I were to, heaven forbid, lose a breast to breast cancer, it would be trivial for me mm -hmm. to access reconstructive surgery, which is fundamentally about affirming my gender. Yes. Likewise, when it's time for me to go through menopause, which some days feels really soon, um, <laughs> I can access hormones to help me present my gender the way I want to present my gender. It's mm -hmm. trivially easy for most men to access testosterone, right? Oh boy, let me tell you. <laughs> so, you know, it's a moral panic. It's not, it's it not anything rooted in reality. And I think it was important for us to read this book, to bring it back to George Joe, because the sweetness, the age appropriateness, the... Um, I'm really trying hard not to stay gentle again, Joe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but this book, for all that it is, makes explicitly clear that anxiety around stories like this are about moral panic mm -hmm. and transphobia and a desire to control people's bodies. Because it sure as heck is not about the story itself. No. And one of the things that I love the most about this book is how effortlessly it put me into Melissa's shoes around the anxiety about being misgendered and just how many comments are casually gendered. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to bring in Victoria's comment here. And one of the things that she says in her email that really struck a chord with me is... In the novel, George Melissa is given she, her pronouns, and we are able to see insight into how she feels uncomfortable whenever someone considers her male or talks about her in a masculine manner. With the juxtaposition of using her correct pronouns and contrasting it with how the other characters speak about her as a boy, we are able to see that even when the characters have the best intentions, like saying, you're going to grow up to be a fine young man, or man up, or it would be cool to see a boy play a girl's role, it really affects how Melissa sees herself. And it could easily lead to things like gender dysphoria and invalidates her experiences as a young trans girl. And that was one of the big light bulb moments for me is just how many of these comments, and none of them are malicious except for nope. the bully, Jeff. But like, her mom, Melissa's mom, makes so many comments, and I'm just like, no. Like, I, I groaned <laughs> inwardly so many times at these just inadvertent bits. And you realize it becomes so important to ask people, you know, yes. how do you feel? Like, this is why pronouns and self-affirmation are so important when we're 
especially interacting with strangers, but also not just taking things for granted around the people that we think we know. Yes. This is the reason why I think this is a book that parents really need to read, because if you're a parent and you don't hardcore cringe through all the scenes with Melissa's mom, you know, like we've been reading a lot of books about, you know, gender presentation and, and how we feel in our bodies. And I actually really believe it's never too early to just have conversations about how your kiddo feels in their body because Mm -hmm. I would never want to be surprised, right? Like that there had never been space for these conversations to take place before. One of the things that happens is Melissa's mom makes a throwaway reference to how it was okay for Melissa to dress up in her clothes when she was three, but that it's not cute anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of parents are really comfortable with kids doing whatever gender presentation wise until they go to school. Right. It comes from a good place. Like I think in Melissa's mom's case, it comes from a place of really not wanting your kid to be hurt and knowing that public schools are terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to discuss that in a little bit when we get to wonder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It doesn't make Melissa's mom a bad person. No. But reading this book as a parent, it's a real cautionary tale. Like, these conversations should be happening all the time. They should be happening, and even some of these casual interactions can be extremely hurtful if not handled sensitively, right? And it doesn't mean that you have to walk on eggshells when you're talking to people, but at the same time, you should be... You need to leave that space to either be corrected or to take note of how someone is reacting, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because one of the things that it didn't bother me because I knew that we would get there in the long run, but the early parts of the book are all about Melissa trying to work up the courage to say, I'm a girl. Mm -hmm. And she finally says it to her mom. Like her mom asks her, what's wrong? You've been acting quiet or something like that. And she says, I'm a girl. And her mom just brushes it off and doesn't want to talk about it. And I get it, you know. I can't imagine what it would be like in that moment where the person you thought was one thing your whole life tells you, I'm actually this other thing. But the way her mom handles it is not great. No. And she gets there in the end, but it takes Melissa two times to convince her mother, like I told you, I'm a girl. And you didn't respond and you didn't listen and you brushed me off. And just my heart broke. It's awful. Like, it really is. And I think, I think, again, one of the important reasons for this book being on a bookshelf for someone to pick up is that books are a way we rehearse conversations, Mm -hmm. right? Like, books are a way we practice how we would react to things. And I, I think that... Making the decision to wish away or ban or block or erase these kinds of stories makes it impossible for you to be a good parent because you can't be there in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. And and those moments are so important. They're so important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the idea, too, of using books as almost a gateway to open up conversations that can be uncomfortable or difficult. Like you can read this book with your kiddo and then you can talk about how does that make you feel? Did they understand it? Did they understand why Melissa was hurting? And that 
that could reveal something or it could just be a great conversation about like hey you might know someone like melissa someday and you need to treat them with kindness because they're going through a lot and you should have some empathy totally i don't want to leave this book without talking about some of the sort of capital l literary things that gino is doing because i think it's Mm -hmm. a pretty deftly crafted little book and i just i specifically want to touch on the presence of charlotte's web here okay mostly because when we we got Sophie's uh, message that came in kind of like last minute. And one of the things they asked was like, Charlotte's Web is not part of my childhood canon. Is there some texture there I can't parse? Mm -hmm. Which brings me back to Victoria, who has a great line. So, you know, Charlotte's Web is the story about Charlotte the spider who can uh, make messages in her web. So, you know, she's transgressive, right? Charlotte Mm -hmm. is a transgressive figure as this spider who can communicate. And Victoria writes, it's interesting that the book uses Charlotte's Web as its centerpiece because not only are spiders representations of feminine power and creation, yes, qualities that Melissa gravitates to, but Charlotte's Web is about positive transgression, where mm-hmm. a spider and a pig can become friends, a spider can be admired instead of feared, a pig can be given a chance to grow old and live a full life, and for a creature so small to do something so big that it saves the life of the central character. Yes. It's... Yes. And it's, a, again, this is, a, this is evidence of Alex Gino's capacity to write for this audience, because that is an intertext that a lot of kids will know, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of kids read Charlotte's Web or have it read to them, grade one, grade two, grade three. So to come to George and have this intertext with a story they already know, that's actually tackling some of the same themes, don't yeah. tell the transphobes or they'll ban Charlotte's Web next. Oh, gosh. Um. I think it's brilliant. I think it is brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, I I won't lie. It was interesting coming on this just after having covered Better Nate Than Ever because it also reinforces the opportunities for discovery that children can make through performativity and theater and Mm -hmm. creative outlets, right? Like, part of me... I was happy that Melissa ultimately gets to play Charlotte and that she just wows the crowd and she does it so well. And it ends up becoming the way that she can really kind of announce herself to her entire class, to Principal Maldonado, to her mother. But I also liked when she didn't get the role and she realized that there was still a way for her to contribute to the production and be a force for positivity and even express herself right it's that moment where she's working as part of the crew and embodying and like channeling charlotte's spirit that she ends up standing up to jeff her bully and sure it results in a physical altercation she gets into trouble but it's one of those moments where melissa leaves behind george Mm -hmm. to start becoming a powerful girl who stands up for herself and you know from that moment on you can you get the sense in Gino's perfect fairy tale world that things are going to be okay for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't it nice to finish a book and think that everything's going to be okay? Not easy, <laughs> right? Not no, perfect, no. but okay. Mm-hmm. It's lovely, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, joy? Happiness? What? <laughs> what are these feelings? <laughs> I really think we need to come back to, you know, black feminist and trans scholars and indigenous scholars have written about this idea of radical joy. Mm. And I think that George is a really important example of radical joy. We can't lose track of the transphobes who have made up a large part of the conversation today, because we can't let them 
overpower the conversation, but we also can't let it be that we never get to tell the stories of joy. Yes. And I think that's something that this book does just in a really gratifying way. And Mm -hmm. for that reason alone, what a joyful book to have on school curriculums. When I was in grade four, we read Let It Go, which was a really miserable (laughs) book (laughs) about this kid and his best friend. And I think one of them dies. Anyway, would have rather read George. (laughs) There we go. Would have rather read George. (laughs) And honestly, super fast read highly engaging i i know we had a couple of folks uh of our four who wrote in and once again thank you to miriam sophie tea books and chocolate and victoria for uh, honestly we have barely scratched the surface of what you wrote in so we really really appreciate that but i did really like that all of them you know commented on oh this was this is a nice read it was a fast read it made me appreciate things that i had overlooked i think this book is doing so much with so little like it's a short book with large middle grade font you know i was reading this and my husband brian said oh well that'll take you about an hour to read and it was true (laughs) yep and that's kind of what i love it's so accessible and it's doing so much heavy lifting all at the same time 100 percent agree with you and i think that oh i don't know what i was thinking okay let's cut it at 100 percent agree with you joe okay (laughs) I would also love to know if someone has snuck this onto their curriculum or if yeah. they have been out there fighting for this book. Let, let's let see if we can seize onto some of that joy and some of the transgressiveness in this book. So if someone has stories about how they've been able to use George to make the world a better place, I would love to hear it. Yes, please share those stories. And um, we're going somewhere very different and not joyful next book club. So we can we can live in this joy for a little while. <laughs> Bask in this for now. <laughs> uh-huh. So our next book club is a weird little book. Joe, it's in the spirit of uh, we're moving between contemporary and classic YA for the mm. band book club. We're going to read Go Ask Alice from 1971, a quote unquote first person narrative of drug addiction written by anonymous but probably not anonymous but we'll talk more about that when we get to book club okay and because we've gotten positive kudos on letting people know two books in advance for the folks who find it difficult to track down some of our books the book that we're going to read after go ask alice is going to be the most shocking and racy and possibly not ya friendly book we have ever covered on the podcast brenna so Ironically enough, it's also the first band book slash book club title that we've ever been able to do a full episode on because it has an adaptation. So we're going to be reading Wetlands by Charlotte Roche. And this was messaged to us by listener Laura, who uh, communicated that this is a bestseller in Germany, where it was also banned for its explicit content. So the book is from 2008. And the film is from 2013. So I'm very excited to check out something that's going to be a bit of a stretch for us, but also like we get to watch a movie of it at the same time. Okay. I'm very excited about it. I will tell you, Joe, that there was a made-for-TV movie of Go Ask Alice starring William Shatner, but we're going to pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah, it's going (laughs) to be a no for me on that one. 
But uh, in terms of deadlines, if folks want to write in about Go Ask Alice, your deadline for that one is May 19th. So Brenna, if they want to write in about Go Ask Alice for that May 19th deadline, how would they do so? Oh, you can find us with your long form comments, hkhspod at gmail.com. And Joe, I just want to reiterate the responses we got today were an absolute joy. We always Mm -hmm. love your thoughts and they do shape the focus of the show. So please keep them coming. If you've got something shorter, you can find us on the Twitters at hkhspod or on the hashtag hkhspod. Joe, if they want to reach out to you directly with their stories of joy, where do they find you? I can be reached at B Stone My Remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C Gray. That's Gray with an A. And Joe, speaking of joy, mm-hmm. <laughs> our next full-length episode is actually pretty joyful. We're going to be checking out the book Derby Girl by Shauna Cross and the film adaptation Whip It, which is... I mean, it's just a lot of fun, Joe. I mean, the movie is great. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, this is another one uh, where the film is maybe a little more successful than the book, but we do have a very fun conversation about it. Looking forward to it. So until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Melissa's brother ends up being like one of the standout characters in the book by the end because mm-hmm. I can't remember his name. In it. I want to say Scott. Yeah, I have no idea. Let I me just double check. Oh, yeah, I have the book literally right in front of me. I guess I could open it. <laughs> did you hear that? I did. <laughs> Can I please watch Paw Patrol because I have accidentally already started it? <laughs> <laughs> and also, I am very hungry. Please make me something to eat. <laughs> Sorry, I I missed everything you just said. You're fine.